Hey, hey, good evening. How's everybody tonight? Good, good. Some people are awake, and there's some that are still waking up, but hopefully we'll get you more woke up. So thanks for the opportunity to come and share with you guys tonight. And um, let's just open our time with a word of prayer. Father, we just pray that you would just bless your word tonight and help me as a speaker to be in the right mindset to, uh, and, and right heart to be able to declare your truth the way you want it said and in a way that your Holy Spirit can take speaking through me what's given to have it penetrate each and every one of our hearts for transformation, for change. Thank you that you love every single person here. Your word tells us that the hairs of our heads are all numbered and you see it even when a sparrow falls to the ground. And so Lord, we just thank you for every individual that's here tonight. And we pray that you would have a special word for each person as well as the whole group. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, we are in the end of the book of Romans, and I'm sure you've heard different outlines and different uh, things shared uh, along the way, but I want to just kind of put a little capstone to, to um, uh, set the tone as we finish it and sort of put bookends on both sides. So um, anybody here, I know there's some people who have been to Bible school, anybody here want to tell me kind of like in one sentence what the book of Romans is about? This is a test. Best stab. Go ahead. What's that? Building the church. Okay, well, that's certainly um, there. All right. Thanks for being the first one to dive in. I appreciate it. Who's next? Come on, take a stab. I like that. I love that answer. Okay. Amen. Amen. Okay. Anybody else to add to that? Foundation for Christianity. Okay. You know, uh, all that's true. So, but here's where we're going to go with this. A little bit of background. That that this is really important, if you're going to understand this book, that originally, I think, uh, as I look at Scripture, that the church at Rome probably started with some Jewish people who lived in Rome. They were business people, or for whatever reason, they were in that area that came up on the day of Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit was given, as Jesus said it would be, and Peter got up and preached a sermon, and there were people looking and saying, oh, these guys are drunk when they saw people speaking in tongues. And Peter says, you know, these people aren't full of new wine. This is, this is what was spoken by the prophets, by the prophet Joel, and he cites it. Well, 3,000 people get saved, and there were people from all over the world. And it said everyone heard them speaking in their own language the wonderful works of God. So those people who had come from Rome hear the gospel in whatever, you know, language that they came from, go back home. And, you know, while they live there as Jewish people in a a distant place. They had synagogues that they had gone to. Now they're they're converted to Christianity, and so they start to to uh, form a church. And so the church at, at Rome was primarily Jewish. And this may sound strange, but if you really want to understand the Book of Romans, you need to understand that there was a conflict between Jewish people who had those roots 
and some people that came along a little bit later, the Johnny-come-lately Gentile people who were non-Jews, just Greek in culture. And so what happened was, um, as the gospel began to go out into the world, Gentile people began to get saved. Well, historically, if you studied out, there was a persecution that was brought particularly on people of Jewish nationality in Rome, and they had to leave that place. And so for a while now, that whole church in Rome is a Gentile church. And then that persecution gets lifted, and the Jews come back. And as a result of them coming back together, there's conflicts that start happening in that assembly. And so Paul is going to write this epistle, foundational, yes, building the church, yes, like things have been said here, Jesus, yes, but part of his main goal is to bring unity and harmony back together between Jew and Gentile. So what he's going to do is he'll start with the very basics of the gospel, and we're going to see tonight he's going to end with the gospel. And when he starts off with the very basics of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, the key verse in verse 16 and 17 and 18, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God, the dunamis, we get our word dynamite, of God to everyone that believes. And then what does he say? To the Jew first. Why does he say that? has to do with this conflict. And also to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. In other words, God's righteous dealings are revealed in the gospel. And the gospel really originally kind of came through the Jews and the Gentiles benefited from it. So in this conflict, these Jews had been law keepers. They had practiced circumcision. They had practiced all the feasts. They had gone up to Jerusalem. They were still trying to hang on to some of those things initially. They didn't want to drink wine. They didn't want to eat meat. And now the Gentiles come in and they're like, we're free in Jesus. We can do all that stuff. And they're like, well, you're not as spiritual as we are or you wouldn't do that kind of stuff. And so this conflict is going on. In fact, uh, as we've said here before, the attitude of the Jews was, I'm a Jew and therefore I'm better than you, Gentiles. And the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile and God's kind of through working with you Jews. We're in a new era now. This is a church age, you know. You guys need to get over this stuff about not eating meat and certain pork and drinking wine. And, and you, you need to just kind of like be like us. And they're like, man, I can't do that. My conscience won't let me. Well, I'll just eat this big pork sausage right in front of you and see how you like that. And I'll drink wine and we'll have a party and we'll invite all everybody else over, all my Gentile friends. But I'll have my Jewish friends here too. I'll, we'll invite you and we'll just do this in front of you. Maybe that'll learn you. Okay? You're saying, Tim, where do you read this in the Bible? You'll see in a minute how this all kind of goes together. So that is a little background. So what Paul's going to do is he, he starts off clear back in the beginning of the righteousness of God. And what about, um, first of all, he says, you know, the people who have never heard the gospel, they have the witness of creation. Creation bears witness. So they're not, they have no excuse. And the moralist, he is without excuse because he has a conscience that's bearing witness that there's a God and that he's a sinner and he needs to be saved, okay? 
And the Jew, he's even more responsible because he was given the Old Testament laws and all the oracles of God, and he still sinned, all right? And so chapter 3, he gives us all these Old Testament verses to back up. There's none that's righteous, not even one. We've all um, sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when he sang that, what leads up to that is he's going to come to this point where he's going to say this words in verse 22. There is no difference. What is he saying? Why did he say that? What he's saying is it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew and it doesn't matter whether you're a Gentile. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The cross is the great leveler. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is. You might be rich, you might be poor. Paul's going to send some greetings in this chapter we're going to look at. And Paul sends greetings to one guy uh, who is like in charge of the public works at Rome. Okay? His name was Erastus. I had a friend who had a dog, and he was trying to think of a good name for him. Looked at him and said, he looks like an Erastus, so he named him Erastus, Bible name. Okay? I don't know that he ever was involved in public works, but, you know, I, I picture the public works guy making sure that the, the water systems in Rome were flooding, were working properly, and the drainage systems worked properly, and Erastus was that guy. So he had a pretty prominent place, and there's other people that are slaves that he's going to send greetings to, okay? Because the cross is a great leveler. Every background, men, women, slaves, rich people, poor people, all coming to Jesus by way of the cross. So, he establishes in chapter 3, from the first three chapters, that we're all under condemnation. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. He introduces the idea that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. The real way you get saved is not by being one of those two. The real way you get saved is by faith through the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so... He says, no, from the beginning of time, chapter, into chapter 3, it was always, whether it was Adam, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid for people that did the remission of sins for those that was, was passed. It goes all the way back to Adam, okay? And that was way before there were any such thing as a Jew. And, and so it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you all sinned, and the only way you're going to get righteous before God is through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Who said Jesus? Well, there it is, okay? And so Paul knew that there would be some Jewish people that would have an issue with that. And so he takes two heroes that they looked at in chapter 4. One was Abraham, and the other was David. And he says, like, Abraham, he couldn't have got saved by keeping the Old Testament Jewish law because he lived before the law. So how did Abraham get saved? He uses this expression. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited unto him for righteousness. Well, what about David? He lived during the time that the law was given, and yet he broke it because he committed both murder and adultery. And yet, David was somebody they really looked up to as this great hero. And he says, but you know what David could say? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count his sins against him. 
How can he say that? Through the work of Jesus on the cross. So the conclusion, Romans 5 verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now chapter 5, he's going to, he deals with two kind of races, whether you're either all in Adam or you're in Jesus. And he deals with the question of whether now that you're a believer, can you just continue to live the way you want? Because I think some of the Jews were saying, those guys say they're Christians, but look, they drink, they eat pork, some of them aren't circumcised. And he, he's going to say, in Jesus you have freedom, but it's not a license to live how you please, please because in Romans 6 he's going to enter it, you're dead to it. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Shall we continue in sin that grace abound? God forbid. Romans 6, we as Christians through the death of Jesus died on a cross. Therefore, we no longer use our members, our hands, our feet, our sexual parts of our body as servants to sin. But since we know that we died with Jesus, we count it so, we reckon it so, King James, and now we yield our members as instruments of righteousness. So I like to say the second part of Romans 6 is knowing, reckoning, and yielding. Knowing that you're dead in Christ and now you're alive as a new creature, new creation. You know that. You count it so. You say, that's, that's the truth. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, and now you yield your members as instruments of righteousness. So in Romans 6, I died to sin. Romans 7, I died to the law through the death of Jesus. A, man, a woman is bound to the law of her husband as long as she lives. When he's dead, she's free to be married to another man. And he goes on and uses that analogy to show, you know, that it's not so much that the law had any problem with it. I was the problem. But through Jesus' death, I died to it. And so now how do I live this life? Where Paul went through that struggle trying to live by law. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Any of you relate to that? And the, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ. There we are again, Will. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay? Uh, through Jesus. Now he can live it. And it's really through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8, we saw as we went through this, that it was all through the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been given a new power. I'm no longer subject to the law of sin and death. If you have a stone and you drop it, it's going to sink. But if you have a bird that has life and power, it will fly. It will go against the laws that once bound it. And we have new life through the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to fly in Jesus instead of to sink like a stone. I always say, any old dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live fish to swim upstream against the current. Okay? And we're, we're living in a time period where there's a, a lot of current. So you got political correctness and weirdness. Political weirdness is what it is. Just flushing down this stream is just going like full of sewage. And we're a fish in the middle of that. We're in the world, but not of the world. We go against the current. We move upstream through a new power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, if you're born of God, you have the Spirit of God. And you're also, he says in chapter 8, you're led by the Spirit. He says, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit itself 
bears witness, you know, to us. But he makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be put into human language. Okay? So that's the first eight chapters. Then we get to 9, 10, and 11. Now, I'm probably going to oversimplify this because there's a lot of people that spend a lot of time hashing it out. But, but in reality, you Gentiles, you Jews who are saying, well, wait a minute, what about us? Chapter 9, God chose you out in his sovereignty. But you screwed up. So you can't take pride in that. In fact, right now, you're kind of under governmental discipline for that. And God is actually going to, those Gentiles that you're kind of looking down on, he's going to actually use those to bring the Jews to jealousy and bring them back. Because God's not done with his people. Chapter 12, 11. Has God cast away his people? No. He's going to fulfill those promises, I believe. Okay, and I think if you're going to rightly understand the scriptures, you're going to figure out what to do with Israel. All right. You can try to spiritualize it all you want, but it's hard to get rid of it. Okay. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me later. I'd be happy to. All right. So you guys better start appreciating each other and get busy serving God because through this redemption that came to Jew and Gentile, where neither one of you had a leg to stand on, and you'd all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and you all got saved the same way, and law-keeping and rituals and shadows that were only shadows of something to come, the reality, however, being found in Christ, is never going to make you a better person. It all comes the same way, through faith in Jesus, by grace. And the only way you can live a Christian life is not by rules and regulations. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, just as we said, knowing, reckoning, and yielding, use your members as instruments of righteousness, your hands, your feet. Here they are, God. Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Chapter uh, 12, he says, I urge you, strong word, beseech, urge, plead with you, could be translated all those ways. Therefore, brethren, whenever you see a therefore, you go back and see what it's there for. The first eight chapters, okay? Offer your bodies, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your only intelligent response. And don't be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. God's will is good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable. Anything that's not that is dumb, okay? Because if the creator of the universe who put all the laws in place and knows every hair on your head and is working all things together for good and one day will reign in triumph as king of kings and lord of lords, says that if we yield each part of our life every single day entirely to his lordship, that that is the most fulfilling thing we can do and way to have a successful life, then why would I think I'm smarter than God? No one knows a product like the manufacturer. God made us. He knows what's best for us. Anything that we might want that's not what he wants can only be second best or worse. So why not choose what he chose? You get to this thing in chapter 13. Chapter 12, you know, render to God the things that are God's, and 13 is rendered to Caesar the things that be Caesar's. You, 
you be subject to those in authority, those that are in higher powers, because they're ordained of God. Don't think now that you're a Christian, that somehow, or you're a Jew, you don't have to submit to these Gentiles. You need to come under this authority, and you need to start, by love, serving one another and living a life of love. That that being characterized by that is where it all starts. So you get to chapter 14, and he's saying that you need to be considerate and not stumble the weaker Christian who still has hang-ups about alcohol and pork and all these Jewish traditions. And you, chapter 15, he carries that same thought out. You who are strong, that's the people who knew their freedoms, you Gentiles particularly, ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Where is this all leading to? Another key verse in Romans, so that with one mouth, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, and one heart, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you'll be so wrapped up in God's amazing, wise, righteous gospel that you'll glorify God together. And no longer thinking, I'm a Jew and I'm better than you, or I'm a Gentile and God's through with you Jews. But you will start living a life of love and consideration for each other, resulting when that unity comes, as, as you see in Philippians, now all of a sudden the barriers to the gospel go down. And now it's free to spread powerfully. Paul wrote in Philippians, so that the gospel could advance, verse 11 of chapter 1. That's the whole purpose of that book is to see the, but he knew there was a quarrel going on and he had to see unity come so that it wouldn't hold up that, it wouldn't interfere and they had to get things straightened out, particularly between two people, Eodius and Synthache, okay? So now he's going to complete it and you see his heart in chapter 16. He's going to give some greetings. The first person he's going to talk about um, is a person who's up there who must have been a little bit surprised, and her name was Phoebe. All right? And Phoebe did what? Better read this. What's that? She's a servant of the church. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, could, word could be translated servant, of the church uh, in Centria. I ask that you receive her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the people uh, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor, a helper, and even in the Greek, it has a sense of a protector, okay? Of many people, including, Paul says, me. Here in these greetings, he starts off, before he's greeting anybody, he says, the person carrying this letter, so this kind of seems strange, you would think on a dangerous journey to get a letter up to Rome that Paul might pick the strongest, burliest guy he could find and say, stick this in your coat pocket and make sure it gets there. Not what happened. Phoebe, a woman, is being used of God 
to carry this letter. It's an amazing letter. Imagine if Romans wasn't in the Bible. I mean, it, it, it just, the Bible would not be complete without the book of Romans. It's an amazing book and scripture. And who is entrusted to carry it there? A woman. All right? So I hope that nobody here is, has the idea that women have no place in ministry. They should just be quiet and never do anything for God except, you know, give their husband a back rub once in a while when he's tired from serving the Lord. All right? Um, I think God's given distinct roles that are in Scripture, all right? But I also believe that um, God, I, I believe that sometimes we minimize uh, what certain people do or don't do. And we all need to appreciate each other in the same way that Paul was trying to get Jew and Gentile to appreciate love and realize that they all got saved the same way. They were all in condemnation. They all needed justification. They're all in the same process of sanctification and they all need to consecrate themselves to God or offer themselves a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. So what happens? Phoebe carries it up there and they open this thing up and read it. And I imagine she's there probably blushing a little bit as Paul gives his words of encouragement she was a helper. She's actually a protector to us, okay? And uh, he says, uh, give her any help she needs. She was a blessing to everybody else and including me. What I love in this thing is how much words of encouragement he gives to both men and to women, okay? If you're going to be, you know, how many people do you think Paul mentions in his greeting by name? In this initial greeting, I'm not talking about the end where he talks about all these people who also send their love along with him, which there was nine of those. He names those guys. Hey, these people are with me. I got Timothy here, got all these people around me. They're all adding their love to send to you guys. We love you guys. You're brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? We want to see you do good. We're all sending, you know, our love to you. You need us. We need you, okay? How many people does he mention up in Rome by name that he's sending greetings to. 26. Had Paul ever been to Rome? No. How many places where there's a church that you've never been to that's hundreds of miles away could you name 26 people? Does that tell you anything about what kind of a guy Paul was? He was not a pastor in an ivory tower that came out on Sunday morning and said, let me pontificate all the wise things I've been studying all week long. This apostle who was gifted as a teacher, gifted as an evangelist, who was an apostle, okay, you see his heart. If you're going to be effective in ministry, my son called me one day. He says he's a pastor down in Aberdeen, been there for like 12 years, 14 years, something like that, planted a church down there. Okay, He says, Dad, a long time ago you told me something. And I kind of knew it was true, but I never really thought about it. But he says, you said when it comes to ministry, relationships are hugely important. 
People are important. It's not programs, all right? It's not if we just get all the right church programs in place and we get all the procedures down pat, then we'll be a successful church. We'll get all the formulas. We'll find out what this church does and that church does because lots of people go there and we'll be a church. Did you know there wasn't even a church building in Rome? There were no buildings till the third century. They just met in houses. Paul talks about the church meeting in this house and the church meeting there. You know where the house churches are? The next people that he mentions are Priscilla and Aquila. The church was in their house. We first read about them. At, they had a, church at Cor- a house church at Corinth. And then later they're in Ephesus. And now they're up here in Rome. I mean, these guys are like cutting edge. Hey, wherever there's a work of the Lord going on or a need, they're there. And there were people that had labored along Paul and, you know, Priscilla and Aquila were a husband and wife team. I think Phoebe probably wasn't married, but I don't know that for sure. But I, I kind of think she was a single woman. You can serve the Lord in your singleness. In fact, you need to make the most of your singleness. It's better to be single than to wish you were. I'll say that one more time. It's better to be single than to wish you were. Now, I also think and have experienced that you can serve the Lord pretty well as a team of husband and wife. And we opened our home and used our home and people in there. I would never have been able to serve the Lord in the ways that have, I have and in the effectiveness, whatever measure that is, that has been there without my wife as a team player. And we know that when Priscilla and Aquila met this guy named Apollos, who only knew about John's baptism and that John was talking about a Messiah to come, They took him aside and taught the word of God to him more perfectly. And I think Priscilla played just as much or maybe more of a role in that than Aquila did. Okay? So women can teach. Women can share the gospel. Okay? Now, I might have some issues when, and Phoebe's mentioned as a deacon. Some translations say a deaconess. That's sexist, okay? It's just one, it's just deacon. It's just a word that means servant. Okay. Now, I, I might have some issues of the role of an elder in a church or whatever, but we won't get into that tonight. You can agree with me or disagree, but if you want to be right, um, I'm just kidding. Um, so, but let's, let's take encouragement. Paul comes along and he encourages all of these people. There's a guy named Rufus here. Rufus. Rufus. Uh, you find out, I think, that he's the same Rufus that's mentioned in Mark's gospel when there was a guy named, anybody remember this? Simon of Cyrene. It says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Okay? And uh, he's the one that they compelled to carry the cross because they didn't want Jesus to stumble and die before he got there. So they make Alexander, uh, they make Simon carry this thing. But his kids, Alexander and Rufus, are mentioned later on in Scripture. Alexander, too, a number of times. And he says, their mom, that would be Simon's wife, their mother was a mother to me as well. You see some people who have been very involved together in a loving, 
relationship and example that he mentions. Some of these people are Jews. Some of them are Gentiles. He lumps them all in. He encourages them all. Speaking about husband and wife, my wife is my CEO. She is. You say, Tim, wait a minute. I, you know, CEO stands for Chief Encouragement Officer. And I hope I'm her CEO. And we need to be everybody and each other's CEO. That's what Paul's doing right here. He is just thinking, that person was a mother to me. Those people opened their home. These people were a help and a blessing to lots of people, including me. You see his involvement there and his interaction? i got to keep going because I'm going to run out of time. So I'm going to skip over these names. You read them for yourself, and I want to get to the meat of the last part. He goes on to say, verse 17, after he gives these greetings, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way, contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. Such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so rejoice. I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about that which is good and innocent about that which is evil. Now, most scholars feel that these were the Judaizers. These were the people that came in who are still urging them to get back under law and keep rules and rituals and add something to the work of Christ. It's Jesus, 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 nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, just Jesus. It's the cross, it's the finished work, and nothing more. These guys come in and they want to add to it. Paul says, watch out for them. In fact, avoid them. Okay? And then it's interesting because he says, everyone has heard about your faith. They've all heard about how you're living for the Lord. So, in view of that, be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. If everyone's heard about your faith, you're actually more vulnerable if you get tripped up by the enemy than if they haven't. Amen? So if you're someone who has a reputation for really walking for the Lord and living with the Lord, Paul's saying you need to be all the more careful and be wise about that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. When a teller goes to work for a bank, they don't say, here's what the counterfeit looks like. Nowadays, they got things they run these things through and scan them. But in the olden days, they would just say, here's the real genuine bill. You get used to the feel of that. And when the counterfeit comes, you'll recognize it. There was an old expression, it doesn't have the right ring to it. Because you drop a coin on a counter, and if it was made out of the wrong material, it didn't have the right sound. Okay? You don't have to study up all the errors of bad doctrine. You just need to know the truth. And then you'll recognize the counterfeit when it comes. You don't have to look through reams of pornography so that you'll be an expert on the evils of it. You just to be, need to be wise about what kind of a woman God would have you spend the rest of your life with and her qualities and character. You don't have to be an expert on that which is evil. You'd be simple there, but wise concerning that which is good. All right? Um, got to, for time, I'm going to move along here. 
And he says, so the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan has been defeated in three ways. He was defeated, past tense, at the cross. Jesus openly triumphed over Satan. He is a defeated foe, Colossians tells us. Okay? He blotted out the handwriting of ordinance that stood against us, nailing it to his cross. Okay? And he, he defeated Satan in a public way. And earlier in this epistle, Paul says, who is the one who condemns? He's defeated. It's God who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Satan's defeated in the past. He's also defeated every single day in the life of a Christian as we walk in obedience to the word and put on the whole armor of God. That's how we withstand the wiles of the devil day by day because we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickednesses in high places. And one day, Satan is going to be defeated when Jesus comes back in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Christ must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. You say, wait a minute. It talks about Satan being under our feet. But that verse says, under Jesus' feet. The victory of Jesus is ours too. In him. Okay? And in the same way that one day, Jesus is going to put everything, all our enemies under his feet. Satan will be under our feet in that sense. Verse 25, I want to move on. Now unto him who is able to establish you. Um, Michael, are you back there? What's that word establish mean in the Greek? What do you have in there? Okay, we'll look that up. And when you, when you kind of get an idea of what you have there, yell it out to me, okay? Put you on the spot. But he says, in my translation that I happen to have here, I think there's a better translation. That's why I'm asking Michael. Now unto him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. All right? He's saying that we're established, we're strengthened through the gospel. If I were going to wrap this up here, and just give me a couple more minutes, Michael, and we'll be done here. We're sensitive to the time. But um, it could read this way. Now unto him, and then you could jump all the way down to verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the thought. Those are the bookends. But Paul has to throw a few more things in there in this doxology, because that's what it is, a doxology. Did you get it yet, Michael? Okay. Now unto him who is able to what? Establish you? That's not, a, that's not included in your manuscript there? Okay. What do you got? All right. What do you got? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, I, I thought he was looking at something. Some translations, okay, and, and again, you have different New Testament versions of Scripture. 
We know God is able and has preserved his word. But it, this could be translated strengthen. Okay? Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, God wants to strengthen you. Doesn't matter whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, God wants to strengthen you. What does a strong woman look like in light of Scripture? You don't hear this every day in church, okay? What does the world and all the pressures of the university, academia, tell you a strong woman needs to look like? Power. Okay, you think of a power woman from the world's eyes, what would that include? Be blunt, be honest, throw it out. Educated, Educated? okay, smart, all right. What's that? Self-sufficient, okay. In need of no one. But sort of what does that look like when you're, you're gonna live this out? I'll tell you a couple ways, three ways that women sometimes think that they have to have power. You may not fit into this category. You may see one of them and say, man, I'm tempted with that one, okay? The first one is through my sexuality, I will gain power. Men are dumb, okay? And they're easy to manipulate. And so I just dress a certain way and I will gain power over them, okay? And there are some women who will use that as a way to gain power. But I just want to tell you, that's a worldly perspective, that if that's how you gain power over a man or to get a man, you wouldn't want to have that man once you got it, would you? Okay. Another way is what was mentioned is assertiveness or aggressiveness. I'm just going to push my way through because I don't want to be repressed. And women have been held back, so I'm going to be aggressive and I'm going to push my way through and I'm going to be assertive. All right? Anybody ever seen that? Known people like that? Okay. I could name a few on TV, but I'm not going to. All right. Another way is smart. I'll be so smart, I'll figure out how to use the system and use people in my workplace or in society to advance myself and have power over other people. What does the Bible say? A strong woman. If the gospel is to strengthen men and women to be what God wants them to be, and we're strengthened or established through the gospel, what does that look like? You know what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3? Whose daughters you are, talking about Sarah, if you don't give way to fear, or you don't fear the things that make people fear. In other words, fearless. All right? You know what it says about the woman in Proverbs 31? She is clothed in dignity or in strength and dignity, and she smiles or laughs at the future. She has no fear. She knows that Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good. I trust God. I don't need to manipulate. I don't need to use my sexuality. I don't need to outsmart people. I need to walk established in the gospel of Jesus, knowing what he did for me 
and knowing who I am and that that's where my identity is, and now I can boldly smile at the future, come what may, single or married, sick or well, poor or rich, doesn't matter. I'm clothed with dignity and strength, and I don't fear the things that make people fearful because I am in Christ, and I know that all things are working together for good. A man isn't strong just because he can lift weights. He's not strong just because he has money that he thinks he can use that kind of power to control things. He's strong when his reliance is upon God in such a way that he can lead his family and his relationships with prayer and with the word as a man of God. That when the moral tide goes one way, he's the fish that swims upstream against the current. He's the Daniel that prays three times a day and doesn't eat the king's meat, all right, or drink the king's wine. He's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that won't bow because his strength comes from God because he, that man of God or that woman of God, has been established in the gospel, okay, which Paul says, which I proclaim back to Will's Jesus Christ. We're established strength. You want to know something? Some people have the idea when you're a baby Christian, you get saved. And then you move past the gospel on to other things. All right? Listen. You never, 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 never get past the gospel. If you're going to be strengthened and established in your Christian life. And Paul says, I proclaim Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden in long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the commandment of the eternal God, listen to this, so that all the Gentiles, there it is again, might come to obedience that comes through faith to the only wise God be glory forever, ever, amen. He's saying, my gospel so wait a minute, I thought it was God's gospel. Yeah, but God entrusted Paul with a special revelation. He refers to it here as this thing called the mystery. What is a mystery in the Bible? We're going to close with this. It's not Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys. Anybody ever watch any of that or see any of that, read those books? It's not, you know, some show on um, forensics where you're trying to figure out who done it. All right? A mystery in Scripture was something that had been hidden in ages past, but it was now revealed. And what it is here is he's saying is the idea of Jew and Gentile being brought together. Ephesians 3 refers to these same words. This mystery of Jew and Gentile coming together and forming one new humanity. In other words, what Paul is saying there is the church is not something that existed in the Old Testament. It's forming a new entity for the very first time, hidden all through Old Testament scriptures, but now revealed. And he goes on in Corinthians, and he says, you know, he talks about the mystery there in 1 Corinthians. Um, let me just read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and he says, No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery hidden that had been hidden, 
that God destined for our glory before time began, none of the rulers of this age understood it. And I think those are demonic rulers, not just kings, all right? For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, if Satan and the demons in hell understood what God was going to make manifest through the church before principalities and powers, Ephesians goes into that, that are looking down, demonic spirits and angels, seeing God's wisdom and amazing work in bringing Jew and Gentile together in a new entity, the church, where they're both made one. There's a unity that had never existed. He broke down that middle wall of partition, the barrier that separated and made peace through the blood of the cross. Not only peace with God, but peace of Jew and Gentile that were at odds with each other for centuries. Okay? And when Paul lays all this out in the book of Romans and ties the whole gospel into this thing, says, if you start understanding Paul's gospel, his mystery that he's writing, okay, which are really the words of Jesus, not Paul, just keep that straight, you will grow, you will be established, you will be strengthened in a way that you won't be any other way as a Christian. Don't neglect Colossians, don't neglect Ephesians, don't neglect Galatians, don't neglect 1 Corinthians, don't neglect Philippians. Those books that lay out that's the aspect of the gospel that was specifically entrusted to the Apostle Paul will establish you and grow you in a way like nothing else will. And so he talks God in his wisdom, and he finishes with, to the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. That's Romans. Lord, bless your word, and bless the small groups, we pray. Be honored here tonight in our lives. Help us to be established and strengthened through Jesus. Help us to be men and women of God, not the way the world looks at it, not through manipulation, not through striving, but through people who know you and walk by faith and not by sight, who can be fearless as we look at the future because of a, our understanding of the gospel in your heart. We pray that in Thrive and, and throughout Gig Harbor, churches would be in unity and harmony so that there would not be barriers to the gospel like Paul was so concerned about as he wrote this amazing epistle. So Lord, would you just bless your word? Use it, we pray, for the glory of Jesus in whose name we ask it. Amen and amen. God bless.